0: Evil. (laughs) For almost half a century, our culture has been embarrassed at words like wickedness, sin, judgment, punishment, and hell. Like a teenager embarrassed at being seen with her parents at a mall. Some of our deep thinkers say evil is only a temporary stage of evolution. A hangover from ancient barbarisms or provincialisms of race, class, and gender that we will just grow out of as we grow out of diapers. Others say evil is ignorance, thus curable by education. We are still waiting for the cure to take. Some say that evil against others is only the acting out of a lack of positive self-esteem. So Hitler was not enough in love with himself. But most of us who are not nihilists, neo-Nazis, or pseudo-Islamic terrorists believe that good is stronger than evil, and therefore that evil is less mighty and terrible than good. We tend to conclude from this, illogically, that we fear evil too much, not too little. We even admire FDR's famous nonsense that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. This strikes us as somehow psychologically healthy and even pious, and its denial unhealthy and even impious. But then we saw the spectacular evils of September 11th. In the chorus of voices that filled our media for the next two months, one voice was conspicuously silent from the babble. Psychobabble. What became of our prophets, the pop psychologists? Where had all the gurus gone? they went where dreams go when the alarm clock goes off when our towers of babel crash to the ground we have seen the limitations of the power of positive thinking norman vincent Peale's religious version of pop psychology we used to find peel appealing and saint paul appalling for his negativism and judgmentalism and polemics now we're beginning to find peel appalling and paul appealing <laughs> And now we have been able to see two-thirds of the movie version of the book that everyone but our experts, the critics, chose as the greatest book of the 20th century. Of course, some truths are so obvious that only experts can deny them. (laughs) The timing of this movie is a patently providential coincidence, for this movie is a story about evil. We need this story ...because we have been overgrown adolescents playing with paper airplanes and catching butterflies... ...and then suddenly our airplanes caught fire and our butterflies caught anthrax. We need this story because we need a wizard like Gandalf or Tolkien to remind us of forgotten wisdom. We need this story because when we have embraced a hundred heresies as the orthodoxy of the future... ...the Lord of the Rings offers us the only possible radicalism left, tradition... Some say there are only 12 basic plots. Some say seven. Some say three. I say one. Jihad. Spiritual warfare between good and evil in some form. Every story worth telling has three stages. A situation is first set up, then upset, then reset, either happily or unhappily. First there is good, then there is evil, then there is warfare. With some resolution, always some Never none, at least in this world, and never all. Theologians know this threefold scheme of the greatest story ever told as creation, fall, and redemption. Bilbo Baggins called it there and back again. Home, the road away from home, and the road back home again. For Frodo, it is the Shire, Mordor, and the Shire, or rather the Grey Havens. My purpose here is not to throw some philosophical abstractions onto Tolkien's wonderfully concrete text, to muffle it like snow on a bell, but to let that text ring out, to do some bell ringing in the temple of Tolkien, to call your attention, like a tour guide, to some of his great words that remind us of forgotten wisdom about evil and how to fight it. I'm a philosopher, so my primary purpose is philosophical rather than literary. And that sets me at cross-purposes with Tolkien, or perhaps better, angled purposes. For Tolkien told us in his foreword that his prime motive was literary, not philosophical. Quote, the desire of a tale-teller to try his hand at a really long story that would hold the attention of readers, amuse them, delight them, and at times maybe excite them or even deeply move them. So I enter Tolkien's literary store as a thief, because I think his words also have great selling power in another store, philosophy. I believe that both literature and philosophy can be legitimate as ends or as means. When Tolkien created his story, he used his philosophy as a means, a fertilizer to grow the story. I now use his literature as means, as fertilizer to grow some philosophy. The philosophy is 10 forgotten points of wisdom about evil. First, that we are at war, not at peace. That our enemy, evil, is real. Second, that evil is very big. In fact, immortal. Third, that knowing the difference between good and evil is very easy and clear. Fourth, that knowledge is not always a good. Fifth, that what defeats evil is evil itself. Sixth, that evil works for good. And finally, that four of the most powerful weapons against evil are sacrifice, humility, friendship, and words. First, evil is real. Think of the first time you saw those spectacular images on your TV screen, September 11th. Now think not of the images, but of the feelings. Not the change outside you, but the change inside you. It was a very sharp and clear change because it was so sudden. It was a change from a peacetime consciousness to a wartime consciousness. It was a little like the change from sleeping consciousness to waking consciousness, which your alarm clock triggers in you every morning. The world that you woke up to was not brought into being by your act of waking up. It had always been there, but you were not always there. If you were dreaming that you were a soldier, you did not cease to be a soldier and begin to be a professor when you woke. You were a professor even while you were dreaming that you were a soldier. Now imagine that instead of a professor dreaming that you were a soldier, you were a soldier dreaming that you were a professor. And suppose the dream went on during the day rather than the night, and then an alarm rang. For many of us, that alarm was September 11th. For others, it was a phone call early in the morning about a family emergency or a death. For others, it was the Bible. But we who believe the Bible constantly fall asleep during battle and dream that we are not at war, but at peace, that we are in upper Eden, not middle earth, and that there is no snake. There are two philosophies of life. One says, woe unto him who cries, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The other says, woe unto him who cries snake, snake, when there is no snake. Which one is the dream and which is the reality? Before September 11th, most of us saw America as the hobbits saw the Shire. Quote, a district of well-ordered business... And there in that pleasant corner of the world They plied their well-ordered business of living And they heeded less and less The world outside where dark things moved Until they came to think That peace and plenty were the rule In Middle-earth And the right of all sensible folk They forgot or ignored What little they had ever known of the guardians And of the labors of those that made possible The long peace of the shire They were in fact sheltered But they had ceased to remember it who are our guardians? Not the CIA or the FBI. We are sheltered not by guardian agents, but by guardian angels. And it is good to know just a little about them. Not too much and not nothing, but precisely those glimpses that have in fact been given to us. As Mary says, dear me, we Tooks and Brandy books, we can't live long on the heights. No, said Pippin, I can't, not yet at any rate, but at least we can now see them and honor them. It is best to love first what you are fitted to love, I suppose. You must start somewhere and have some roots, and the soil of the shire is deep. Still, there are things deeper and higher, and not a gaffer could tend his garden in what he calls peace but for them, whether he knows about them or not. I am glad I know about them a little. And so are we. We thank both authors of The Lord of the Rings, the inspired one and the inspiring one, for pulling aside our curtain just a little. Of course, the book's inspired. It's got his fingerprints all over it. One of the many reasons we voted this book the greatest of the century in four separate polls and why the movie will probably be the greatest and most successful movie of all time is the need for it. That's not why Tolkien wrote it, but it's probably one of the reasons why God did. It's a long and beautiful alarm clock. Our war did not begin in Manhattan, but in Eden. Our enemies are not merely terrorists of the body, but terrorists of the spirit, principalities and powers. They come not from Afghanistan or Iraq, but hell. You do not need to commit the sin of allegory to see who the black riders are, said Strider in a low voice. They come from Mordor, from Mordor, Parliament, if that means anything to you. Strider's suggestively laconic, do you want them to find you? They are terrible recalls Ingmar Bergman's description of the angel of death in the seventh seal. It's the angel of death passing over us, Mia. It's the angel of death, and he's very big. More evils come from Mordor than we know. Even the little local evils in the Shire that had to be scoured at the end. Sam said, this is worse than Mordor, much worse in a way. It comes home to you, as they say, because it is home, and you remember it before it was all ruined. Yes, this is Mordor, said Frodo, just one of its works. The very end of the war, I hope, said Merry. I hope so, said Frodo, and sighed, the very last stroke, but to think that it should fall here at the very door of Bag End. Among all my hopes and fears, at least I never expected that. The great war begins and ends in your house. Our second surprise, after remembering that we are at war, is the size of our enemy. We are shocked to hear these words from Gandalf after he returns from death. War is upon us and all our friends, a war in which only the use of the ring could give us surety of victory. It fills me with great sorrow and great fear, for much shall be destroyed and all may be lost. I am Gandalf, Gandalf the white, but black is mightier still. Later, Gandalf says, after the great victory on the Pelennor fields, My lord, listen to the words of a steward of Gondor before he died. You may triumph on the fields of the Pelennor for a day, but against the power that has now arisen, there is no victory. I do not bid you to despair, as he did, but to ponder the truth in those words. The stones of seeing do not lie. Not even the dark lord of Barad-dur can make them do so. He can, by his will, choose what things shall be seen by weaker minds and cause them to mistake the meaning of what they see. But it cannot be doubted that victory cannot be achieved by arms. I still hope for victory, but not by arms. According to Tolkien, evil is, in fact, immortal. All our victories against it in this world are temporary. Gandalf says, the evil of Sauron cannot be wholly cured, nor made as if it had never been. Other evils there are that may come, for Sauron is himself but a servant or an emissary. So what can we do? We can only defeat the temporary bodily forms that evil uses, the orcs or Nazgul or evil wizards. We can break the swords, but not the swordsmen. Only one can bruise the swordsman's head, and he does it only by being bruised in his own heel. How then can good defeat evil if not by strength of arms? By embracing his heel, by embracing weakness, by self sacrifice and humility and suffering and death. Here is evil's weakness it is limited to power, it cannot use weakness. It is limited to pride. It cannot use humility. It is limited to inflicting suffering and death. It cannot use suffering and death. It is limited to selfishness. It cannot use selflessness. Even though black is mightier still, Gandalf the white triumphs over Sauron. Because evil can only destroy and give death. It cannot create and give birth. Gandalf says... Trolls are only counterfeits made by the enemy in the great darkness in mockery of Ents, as orcs were of elves. The shadow that bred them can only mock, it cannot make. That is why one of the lowest and least divine arts is satire, the art of mockery, and why one of the highest and most creative arts is fantasy. There is no satire but much fantasy in The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien says, let there be hobbits, and there are hobbits. We are back near the beginning, and nothing is evil in the beginning. Tolkien is not only a wizard, but also a child. Not only Gandalf, but also Tom Bombadil. Not only Treebeard, but also Sam. It takes a child to feel the weight of both good and evil. And good as well as evil has a weight in the Lord of the Rings that surpasses any other book of the century. What? Other 20th century author could have written a passage like this one about the triumph of good over evil. In the midst of Mordor's landscape of death, Sam, quote, to keep himself awake, crawled from his hiding place and looked out. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, he saw a white star twinkle for a second. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him for like a shaft clear and cold the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing there was light and beauty forever beyond its reach only a small and passing thing but this shadow is from satan the one who succeeded in killing god for three days Who but a Christian could ever plumb the depths of evil and therefore by hard-won right of good? I think of Corrie ten Boom's shattering statement in The Hiding Place from the antechambers of Hitler's Mordor in the death camp at Ravensbrück. She said, this darkness is very deep, but our God has gone far deeper still. When you have been to Calvary, even Ravensbrück can look trivial. A third surprise is that the line between good and evil is usually very clear and very obvious. Moses, Confucius, Jesus, and Muhammad all taught this simplistic vision, and they founded the four most lasting moral regimes in human history on it. Our culture is the first one in history whose experts and teachers have sold their moral birthright for a mess of relativism. Morality is not hard to know it is hard to do It is hard to know only for the clever for only if you are clever Can you invent so many cover-ups that you can make it hard to know? Only the good-hearted see the good and only the pure in heart see God Discernment is not a mental problem. It is a moral problem Jesus said if your will were to do the will of the father you would understand my teaching said aomer it is hard to be sure of anything among so many marvels the world is all grown strange elf and dwarf in company walk in our daily fields and folk speak with the lady of the wood and yet live and the sword comes back to war that was broken in the long ages ere the fathers of our fathers rode into the mark how shall a man judge what to do in such times as he has ever judged said aragorn good and evil have not changed since yesteryear nor are they one thing among elves and dwarves and another thing among men it is a man's part to discern them as much in the golden wood as in his own house aragorn's answer rings like a clear bell in a foggy swamp a fourth surprise to us is that sometimes knowledge is not good sometimes it is quote better not to know as Mary wisely says, of the ingredients in the orc's food and of the Eucharist-like waybread or lembas. For the folly of wanting to know too much and believe too little about that lembas, the church was split. Christ did not say take and understand. He said take and eat. <laughs> the operative words that set in motion the only power that can conquer Sauron are Frodo's fateful words, I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. That was Socrates' claim to wisdom, too, that he knew that he did not know. It is perilous to study too deeply the arts of the enemy, as Denethor, like King Saul, discovered at the price of his own soul. Like Eve, Denethor, quote, looked in the stone and was deceived. Well, we all have such a stone. For Eve, it was a fruit. For you or me, it is usually a thought the first greedy, lustful, proud, despairing, or dishonest thought that is not taken captive to obey Christ, to obey light. Perhaps that was what Eve's first fruit was too. Denethor and Theoden move in opposite directions, like the syllables in their names. Denethor moves from life to death because he demands knowledge from the seeing stones before acting. Theoden moves from death to life because he repudiates his tempting palantir Grima Wormtongue we all got one of those he takes Gandalf's advice to cast aside regret and fear to do the deed at hand another bell in a swamp you see thought lives in the past of regrets and in the future of fears whereas choice and action live in the present of the deed at hand almost never is our moral problem knowing what to do almost always it is doing it William Law says in a serious call if you will be utterly honest with yourself you must confess that there is one and only one reason why you are not as saintly as the primitive Christians the martyrs you do not wholly want to be we rightly want to look before we leap physically but we must leap before we look spiritually Isaiah says if you do not believe you will not understand Faith and the works of love cannot wait for knowledge. Knowledge must wait for them. We cannot see God or the good before we are pure of heart because the heart is the very eye with which we see God. Bilbo's foolish words reverse this order when he expresses to Gandalf his reluctance to leave the ring behind. Now that it comes to it, I don't like parting with it at all, and I don't really see why I should. Sometimes, in order to see, we must rest our eyes. A fifth surprise is that evil defeats itself. The ring, says Gandalf, cannot be unmade by your hands or mine. We cannot defeat evil. But we can help it to defeat itself by a kind of spiritual judo. That's how Christ defeated Satan on Calvary. It was like a Muhammad Ali come and get me move. God did what Frodo did to conquer evil. Quote, "To walk into peril, to Mordor, we must send the ring to the fire." Like Orpheus, God went down to hell for his beloved Eurydice, that is us, when he cried, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" That is the logic of evil. Like a self-contradictory proposition, you cannot refute it with any other proposition, but it refutes itself. But there must be bait. We must be the bait, as Christ was. The whole fellowship, in different ways, does this. Gollum does it unwillingly. Frodo and Sam do it willingly for each other and for the Shire. And Gandalf and Aragorn and their 7,000 at the Black Gate do it for Frodo and Sam. Gandalf says, we must ourselves be the bait. We must walk open-eyed into that trap, as Christ did on the cross. For he is not our exception, but our rule. The concrete particular way in which evil defeats itself is unforeseeable, both by the good and by the evil. For instance, who foresaw in 1917 that there would be 1989? Neither Sauron nor Gandalf anticipated the importance of Sam or Gollum, or just how the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many in sparing Gollum. It appeared suddenly at the crack of doom. Then the Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, that is Frodo, and the magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding, sudden flash. A miserific vision, like that face in Dore's illustration of Dante's Inferno. Yet, while we are amazed and surprised when we first come to the crack of doom in Volume 3, yet we are not surprised. For in that consummation, we recognize, we recognize, we remember the truth. We recognize all the characters and many of the events in this story. They're familiar to us because the characters are parts of us. And the events are parts of our lives. This is our story. It is a mirror. We're fascinated by it most deeply because of its truth. It's not even its beauties that pierce our hearts like swords, to use C.S. Lewis's words, or even its utter goodness that captivates us the most. If books could be canonized as saints, this one would make it in a breeze. No, it attracts us most powerfully because it is true. It is eternal truth made into temporal flesh. Only a great myth can do that, astonishing feat. Translate the eternal truth of good and evil into the radically different medium of a temporal story. It makes the abstract concrete, the invisible visible, the word flesh. It is the opposite of pornography, which is the flesh made word. That is why there is no pornography in the great myths. A sixth surprise is that evil is used for good. I like to think of divine providence like a French chef using spices from decayed vegetables to make good food even better. That all things, even evil, work together for good is familiar to the biblically literate, It's Romans 8.28, but it never ceases to be startling. That God writes straight with crooked lines, That, as Lady Julian of Norwich says, even sin is behovable or good for something. The clearest case is the crucifixion. The greatest evil in history, deicide, was used as the cause of the greatest good in history, salvation. There are many ways that evil is providentially used for good in the Lord of the Rings. Here are just two. The first is the need for apparently tragic events like Merry and Pippin being captured by the Orcs. Gandalf notes, They were brought to Fangorn, and their coming was like the falling of small stones that starts an avalanche in the mountains. Is not that strange? Nothing that we have endured of late has seemed so grievous as the treason of Isengard. Yet, between them, our enemies have contrived only to bring Merry and Pippin with marvelous speed and in the nick of time to Fangorn, where otherwise they would have never come at all. The clearest case, I think, is Gollum. And I'll talk about him a little more later. But, like Tolkien, God has very dangerous tastes and very permissive tastes. He permits a lot of evil in the plot of his great story and works it out for good and brings us to the brink. Our salvation has sometimes hung on a thread. Literally, if a cheap Egyptian tailor had not cheated on the threads of Joseph's mantle, It would not have come apart in the hands of Potiphar's wife when Joseph fled from her seduction and there would have been no physical evidence to convict Joseph and put him in prison at her accusation and he could not have interpreted the dreams of his fellow prisoners, Pharaoh's ex-butler who was to be returned to favor and his ex-baker who was to be executed, so that years later when Pharaoh had the dream of the seven skinny cows eating the seven fat cows and could find no sage to interpret it, the butler could finally remember Joseph, he had ADD, (laughs) and tell Pharaoh about him. With the result that Joseph interpreted the dream and convinced Pharaoh to store extra grain for the seven fat years to prevent starvation during the seven skinny years, and only because of that was there grain in Egypt for Joseph's family, the only 70 Jews in the world at the time, to escape starvation and survive, later to multiply to a million under Moses at the time of the Exodus. There would have been no Jews, no chosen people, and therefore no Jesus if it were not, for one weak thread in Joseph's mantle. We owe our salvation to a cheap Egyptian tailor. (laughs) Divine Providence has a sense of humor that is, as we say in Boston, bizarre. It may be a bizarre design, but it is not a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It is immensely significant, but it is mysterious. My last four points are about Four of the strongest but most overlooked weapons against evil. Sacrifice, humility, friendship, and words. One power that evil is utterly helpless before is sacrifice. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In the book of Revelation, the lamb, the Greek word arnion means wee little lamb, defeats the beast. The Greek word therion means monstrous and terrifying monster. He does it by his blood. Is death. And because it worked on Calvary, it works everywhere, since Calvary is the rule, not the exception. Sacrifice is the height of love, the apogee of agape. And agape is the nature of ultimate reality, the nature of God. And God has no rival. Who is like God? That is the meaning of the name Michael, the archangel who is Gandalf to Satan's Sauron. Frodo and Gandalf and Aragorn are all in different ways martyrs Christ figures they undergo three different kinds of voluntary deaths and resurrections Christ's tomb was a rock Gandalf's was the abyss of Moria Aragorn's was the paths of the dead and Frodo's was the effect of the ring on his spirit a disease incurable in Middle-earth the elves like Frodo also are martyrs they give up the whole world since the power of the three elven rings is now gone although you might still see a few of them lingering on in the west coast of ireland if you have a sharp eye (laughs) galadriel too saves middle earth by sacrifice by resisting the temptation to power i pass the test she said i will diminish and go into the west and remain galadriel When Frodo explains to Sam why he must go to the Grey Havens, that is, death, he says, I have been too deeply hurt, Sam. I tried to save the Shire, and it has been saved, but not for me. It must often be so, Sam, when things are in danger. Someone has to give them up, lose them, so that others may keep them. The price is really paid, as on Calvary and on every battlefield. My life for yours is the universal formula. Calvary is the rule, not the exception. This is very good news and very bad news. The good news is that it really works. Strength really is overcome by weakness, pride by humility, tyranny by martyrdom, Sauron by Frodo, Satan by Christ. The very bad news is that the price is very real and very steep and must be paid. To slay evil's head, goods heal must bleed and bleed forever in this world there are 1900 nails upon the cross wrote the poet in 1940 this is not a principle for emergencies only all of human life is an emergency in our world as in tolkien's world for there is no difference the lord of the rings is not set in some fantasy world but in our world middle earth is the third rock from the sun And in this world, the self is saved only when it is lost, only when it is really given up in sacrifice. In this world, true freedom comes only when you bind yourself to your duty. The opposite of freedom is the power which corrupts and enslaves. The ring is a perfect symbol for that. It is a closed circle, like a clenched fist or a worm swallowing its own tail. And it encloses emptiness, the damned self. It is the exact opposite of the cross as we know but constantly forget the cross is the rule not the exception and so is the ring what Gandalf tells Bilbo Christ tells us it has got far too much hold on you let it go and then you can go yourself and be free and like Bilbo we constantly reply I'll do as I choose and go as I please To us, too, as to Frodo on Amon Hen, when he puts on the ring and almost exposes himself to the eye of Sauron, come inspirations from Gandalf to counter the one from Sauron. Take it off! Take it off! Fool! Take it off! Take off the ring! Eventually, it becomes impossible to take it off. And only Gollum can save Frodo at the crack of doom. But only after Gollum has liberated Frodo from his finger and from the ring. Then can it be said of Frodo that, quote, he had been saved, he was himself again, he was free. Poor Gollum is too far gone down that road ever to return, the road of losing the self by grasping it. Gollum cannot distinguish himself from the ring. Both are precious. He can rarely even use the word I anymore, the image of I am. His name is we, or legion, for he is many. By grasping himself and his power and his freedom and his ring, he has lost himself and his power and his freedom and his ring. Far down that road lives the lieutenant of the Tower of Barad-dûr, whom the captains of the Army of the West meet at the Black Gate, perhaps the most terrifying line in The Lord of the Rings. His name is remembered in no tale, for he himself had forgotten it, and he said, I am the mouth of Sauron. The reason why it is true that in The Lord of the Rings, those who lose the self save it, and those who save it lose it, is that Middle-earth is our earth. Tolkien's world is the real world. It's not just because Tolkien is a Christian, but because a Christian is a realist. This is not fantasy, this is reality. Another form of self-sacrifice is humility, the sacrifice of pride and power. Only hobbits, not men or elves or wizards, could get into Mordor. Only the most miserable hobbit at the crack of doom could complete the task. Unless we become like little hobbits, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. For our Lord became a little hobbit, and he is the rule, not the exception, remember? At the Council of Elrond, the outcome of the principle of humility was foretold. Elrond said, the road must be trod, but it will be very hard, and neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon it. Such is off the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them, because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Another formidable weapon against evil is friendship. We are surprised to hear this. We cannot imagine a military propagandist Wondering how to frighten the troops of the enemy coming up with this terrifying threat. Our soldiers are loyal friends. Yet, friendship is strength, even in a military sense, because it unites while weakness divides. Divide and conquer is the most elementary and practical military strategy. Friendship refuses to be divided and thus refuses to be conquered. Any soldier knows that few men will do heroic deeds for abstract causes, even justice, but many will die for their buddies, their friends. The single force most responsible for winning the War of the Ring is Sam's friendship and love of Frodo. Friendship is, of course, a form of love in pre-modern languages. The very title of Volume 1, The Fellowship of the Ring, shows the centrality of friendship or fellowship. It also shows that it is evil in the form of the ring that elicits the strongest flowering of this great good in Middle Earth. Because our stories take place in the same place, Middle Earth, the differences in time cannot change this truth. Merry and Pippin, and of course Sam, are necessary to the success of the quest, and only friendship brings them along. When Frodo tries to leave the Shire alone so as not to endanger his friends, they form a conspiracy not to let him go alone. Frodo complains, does not seem that I can trust anyone. Mary replies, You cannot trust us to let us face, let you face your troubles alone. We are your friends, Frodo. There are doors that only friendship can open. For instance, that great gate of Moria, which responds to no force or spell of Gandalf's, but only to the word friend, Melon. The inscription over the door said, Speak, friend, and enter. And Gandalf puzzled over what spell or password to speak until he realized, as Saruman never would have done, that only the simple and innocent could solve this puzzle. The translation should have been, say the word friend and enter. I had only to speak the elvish word for friend and the doors opened. Too simple for the learned lore master in these suspicious days. Or as we say in academia, only a deconstructionist could miss it. culmination of sam's friendship for frodo is his carrying him up to mount doom like christ carrying his cross or like simon of cyrene helping christ to carry his cross to the end as frodo carries his ring to the end to his amazement he felt the burden light he ain't heavy he's my brother finally a word about words because in the beginning was the word therefore words have power over things it was in words that things were created God first spoke the word then the thing came to be not vice versa with us it is usually vice versa we invent words to label pre-existing things except when we sub-create like Tolkien in Tolkien's story words have a power we usually call magical But we misunderstand that word as a kind of shortcut technology. It is very different. It is the magic of formal causality, not material causality, to use Aristotle's distinction. The inherent form or meaning and purpose of a word flows over into the material and visible effects, sacramentally, so that a word can effect what it signifies. Thus, Tom Bombadil's spell saves Mary from old man Willow, and saves Frodo from the Barrow White. None has ever caught him yet, for Tom, he is the master. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. We're surprised to hear that songs can be strong only because we forget what we have learned from the Silmarillion, that it was in music that God created the universe. Frodo, too, has this so-called magical power. When he calls Tom's name, two miracles happen. One spiritual and one physical. First, quote, with that name, his voice seemed to grow strong. And second, Tom actually comes. If we find this magic unconvincing, I think that reveals a lot about our religious life and how much we have taken God at his word when he repeatedly promises the same thing Tom Bombadil does. You just call out my name, and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you've got to do is call, and I'll be there. Yeah, 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 you've got a friend. We all know there are magic words, words that sacramentally effect what they signify, like, I baptize you, or this is my body. Two of the most familiar are, I love you, and I hate you. These are not labels. These are weapons, arrows that pierce through flesh into hearts. The whole of the Lord of the Rings is a great armor-piercing rocket. It can get even into our underground bunkers, our darkest inner Afghanistans and Baghdads. The most powerful names are proper names, names of persons or places. When the black rider bangs on Fatty Bolger's door in Buckland, saying, open in the name of Mordor, all the terror and power of Mordor are really present there. When Frodo on Weathertop faces the black rider, quote, he heard himself crying aloud, oh, Elbereth, Gilfaniel, as he struck the rider with his sword. Afterwards, Aragorn says, all blades perish that pierce that dreadful king. More deadly to him was the name of Elbereth. What's in a name? In the name of Jesus devils were exorcised, and the gate of heaven was opened for us. What's in a name? Everything. In a name, the universe was created. The name was Christ, the logos, the mind of God, the creative word of God. That is the Son whose beams we use when we subcreate. The Son is the Son of God. What's in a name? Moses asked God that question at the burning bush, and God answered, I am. In a world so fragile that a little evil can turn it upside down, we wonder what is stronger than evil, and we get the same answer. need to abandon this rope so another class can come in. So if you have questions, up here. I'm wondering if you could comment on Tom Bombadil's like, who he is, and what can do. Comment on who Tom Bombadil is. According to the text of the book, Tom Bombadil is himself. <laughs> Does he somehow also be unfallen Adam and Mother Nature? Uh, and Tolkien himself, yes. Uh, he's not an allegory. He is himself. He's just delightful. Right here. Did you speak more of the immorality of evil? And then maybe how it began? Well, it began with the world's oldest profession, advertising. See this apple? You need it. Buy it. One soul. <laughs> the other thing that's called the world's oldest profession borrows that technique from... <laughs> <laughs> uh, it begins with thought. So a thought, reap an act. So an act, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. Uh, what sort of man could write a story like this? Only someone whose ancestors had elvish blood. <laughs> <laughs> Because the Bible says that uh, evil first existed before man was created, namely uh, Satan and the fallen angels, and they're immortal. So evil is not just what we do; we're we're pawns on a larger chessboard. what else? There. Yeah. Really, um, well, evil in Vulcan exists like as a thing of its own. It is evil regardless of where humans and elves and all beings play in, in the thing. It seems to me in, in this world people are a little bit different that. you really think that evil is just an embodied thing? I think you've misunderstood either Tolkien or this world because Tolkien is not a manichae. He doesn't think anything is evil as a thing. And he thinks that nothing is evil in the beginning. So evil is always the perversion of an original good. Nor does he think that evil is a person. The stupidest criticism of The Lord of the Rings that some of the critics buy into is it's simplistic. Good guys versus bad guys, black and white. There's no such thing as somebody that's purely good or purely bad in this world. There's a little good in the worst of us and a little bad in the best of us. And that's our world and Tolkien's world. So I'd say it's utterly realistic. So the two worlds are here and there. Well, here's gray. What is gray? It's some black and some white. What are black and white? Absolute opposites. Okay, here's, uh, let's say, Gollum, or even Gandalf. Uh, Gollum's very bad, but there's some good in him. Gandalf's very good, but there's some bad in him. He can be tempted. So each one is gray, even though one is a bit whiter and one is a bit blacker. That doesn't mean that black and white aren't really black and white. See, good guys and bad guys aren't sharply distinguished, but good and evil are. One more question over here. Is there an Aslan character in, uh, in Tolkien? No, because Aslan is close to an allegory, although he's not quite an allegory. Aslan is Jesus Christ in a fictional world, Narnia. And Lewis in Aslan did a miraculous thing. He enabled us to feel towards Aslan as a literary character the way people actually felt towards Christ. It's an amazing achievement. Uh, Tolkien didn't do that. He made Christ figures. Uh, Gandalf, Aragorn, and Frodo are respectively the prophet and the king and the priest, the three messianic offices in the Old Testament, and they all undergo some sort of deaths and resurrections. So they're like Christ. That's a common literary device. It's not even a conscious allegory.